Welcome to Four Quarter Lives, a podcast exploring the profound impact of longer, healthier, and more engaged lives, not only for ourselves and our couples, but also for companies and countries. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and on this week's Four Quarter Lives, I talk with Lisa Edgar, Chief Customer Officer of the Saga Group and CEO of the agency, The Big Window. Saga specialized in services to Q3 clients with both leisure and financial services as their pillar. Their ad campaigns center around the idea that experience is everything. While the business recognizes that Q3ers in their early 60s concentrate wealth and spending in the UK. Lisa Edgar shares her decades of experience on how to connect authentically with this consumer segment. So welcome, Lisa Edgar, to Four Quarter Lives. Delighted to have you with us. And it's an absolute pleasure to be with you. So Lisa, you're the chief customer officer of the Saga Group. And to me, Saga is kind of the representation of the retirement dream, a beautiful couple on a boat looking into the horizon. Tell me a little bit, who is Saga, really? I'd like to buy into that dream as well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Saga serves a particular cohort or set of cohorts. It serves the over 50s. And it does so with a gamut of products and services from things that allow you to enjoy your retirement holidays and cruises to things that, I guess, protect you in retirement. So insurance, savings, other money products, health insurance, and so on. It typically tends to ignite appeal in people once they kind of get into their 60s. So once they're approaching and then into retirement, but generally speaking, it serves people over 50. Is Saga seeing or how are they responding to what the media loves to present as this trend to unretirement? Is that actually really happening? And what do you think of that? Yeah, we've been talking a lot about that over the last year. I guess the term unretirement for me came to the fore through COVID because COVID was a disruptor, clearly a disruptor at the macro level, but certainly a disruptor at the micro individual level as well, because it provided people with a trigger to think about what they wanted from their lives and how they wanted to live their lives as well, because people were working from home, it changed the context of how they interacted with their friends and family and their environment. But the reality is that the unretirement, as it's so called, is really kind of an outcome of socioeconomic pressures and demographic changes. The relationship between low birth rates and longer lives and the way that we kind of save for our pensions and the old age dependency ratio means that we will have to change the nature of retirement. The reality is that people will do purpose and pleasure in equal measure (laughs) as they get older. There will no longer be an office chair to armchair. People want to combine both enjoying their lives in their older years, but also have a sense of purpose in them as well. And I think that's quite right. And, you know, I think the generations that we are now engaging with the boomers and behind them, the Gen Xers who are coming up to 58 now at their oldest years, you know, they want to feel purpose in a different way than perhaps the kind of generations that came before them, like the silent generations. They want to feel purpose 
longer and later into life. Absolutely. So no more cliff edge. We're saying goodbye to the cliff edge where we just suddenly go from 150% to zero. No more, no more cliff edge, more glide path. Glide path. I like it. Which <laughs> leaves us with the fact that you shared with me that the wealthiest segment of consumers in the UK today are the 60 to 64-year-olds. So I guess that's the tail end of the boomers. Do you find that anyone targets them effectively? And what does it take? What are the most common mistakes you see companies making in trying to integrate this aging reality? Yeah, those in their early 60s are the wealthiest in society, Aviva, on almost any ONS measure, you know, house value, savings and wealth, kind of inheritance expectations and so on. But really successfully targeting anyone, whatever their age, is more about relevance than actual age. And I think I really like to hold that word as we go through. Okay. Um, relevance, our, our, relevance, 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 relevance. Relevance to whom and when? Yeah. So relevance is probably more about life phase and life stage than it is strictly about age. We see people go through various forms of retirement at completely different ages. We see people becoming grandparents at completely different ages. We see them paying off their mortgages at different ages and also seeing their children off post-university, though some of them, of course, come back, completely different ages. And all of these things are fundamental to relevance, what you want at different points in time. And yes, of course, they coincide what you talk about, which I really like, which is the third and fourth quarters of our lives. But in and of themselves, they're the trigger. And it's the coincidence with age that's kind of really interesting. And you kind of talk about who does it well or kind of who makes kind of mistakes. And I I kind of think where I see it perhaps going wrong or not quite hitting the relevance target is where organisations get too anchored into age, which becomes binary. And I think as soon as you anchor into age, your conversation starts to become linear and it starts to think about decline, getting older, getting into a different age, one step at a time, rather than the needs of a life stage and the opportunities and possibilities within that. It was kind of, when I was thinking about your question, it reminded me of just a little project we did a while back on our huge customer panel We asked a group of people to describe someone at particular age points, you know, 75 or 85. What do you imagine when you see that person? If I just tell you that they're 75 and they're female or they're 85 and they're male or whatever it might be. And then we asked another group of people, what do you imagine in your mind if I say someone was born in 1968 or 1958? So I gave the same thing. Right. It just gave context. Completely different context, yeah. And then you get, oh, well, they must have been a rocker or they must have been, you know, in the protest of 1968 or they must have yeah. been sexually hedonistic or you get all this rich territory around who they are and where they've come from. So that generational overlay to the life phase that they're currently at and that then starts to serve up. How do we relate to them? What's important to them? Where are they at? Where have they come from? Much, much richer than, oh, they're 75. So they must be just getting older. 
Okay. I love that idea. The As soon as there's an age hook, that yeah. primes people basically to go into linearity and decline. I think that's absolutely very powerful. And just the shift from age to stage and a much more aspirational form of opening the conversation. So Lisa, a little bit about you. You've been pretty aspirational, I must admit. And you've been running insight agencies and helping brands for a couple of decades. So can you give us a little quick overview of your career trajectory and how did you end up inside Saga Group after a lifetime kind of your own boss? Well, you know, I started in corporate life at Nestle Roundtree. And I actually started Aviva in, in industrial relations and people management. So on the, the shop floor in the old days where decisions were made in smoke-filled rooms of, you know, and, and outcomes <laughs> were decided. But I quickly moved. I've always had an analytical brain. I've always been interested in how do you make commercial strategies turn into business realities. So I moved relatively quickly into brand planning at Nestle Roundtree, where I looked after the box chocolate brands, including Quality Street, Always been aspirational. What, what, what can you say? A great, great time, great brand, fantastic. And then I moved into kind of consultancies after that quite quickly. And only five years after that, I came back from being a projects director out in Sydney in Australia and started running my own businesses at the time with a business partner but ran an, an agency for about 10 years. And in 2010, 2011, in that agency, we were working with Saga as a consultant and together with some of our other clients where we interfaced with older consumers, particularly financial services clients, because that's yep. key in terms of kind of the life staging overlay onto decision-making. Financial decision-making is really key as you get into your 50s and 60s. I started to observe the nuances of the aging process and how that impacted on needs and decision making. And I, my antennae started to kind of wave a bit. And I, I thought, this looks interesting. This, this is me. I can, I can address some years here. This is really meaty. I did a postgrad looking at the relationship between age and job satisfaction at the same time. The now very well cited U bend of job and life satisfaction, I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about later. And that really gave me the impetus to start my own agency, to go out alone, where I could really explore the possibilities and the opportunities of not just exclusively the older market, but the pathway into these really interesting life stages we were talking about, even from 30s and 40s. How does that transition? And then really, what does that materialize into as you get into your older life? So about 10 years ago, I started The Big Window, started in the last two or three years having conversations with Saga, saying this is an enormous opportunity for you in this area if you really not just understand a fixed cohort, but how we change as we go through these life stages. You know, they said, well, how about if we buy into you and you become a bit like behavioral science unit for the government, if you become our Expert. Our brain, our, our, yeah. our, our eyes on the... Uh, well, the eyes, yes. I would hate to say the brain, but certainly the eyes. Yeah. Sitting on the window ledge of the organisation, looking in and starting to formulate. Um, looking in and looking out, I guess. Yeah, yeah, well, which is great. Yeah, we've still got That's our, why the agency was called the big window. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Perspective, clarity, vision is absolutely what we want to be. And in fact, the agency still runs very successfully as an external force to lots of the big players in the industry. 
yeah, so looking out, looking in, you know, a fantastic place to be. So you've been super early on this whole longevity Q3 phenomenon <laughs> that uh, many of us are now just discovering. Ten years ago, you ran a project with the BBC focused on older consumers and the perception of age more generally. And you talk about this big difference between perceived and chronological age. Can you develop that a bit? Of course. You might remember, Aviva, about 10 to 12 years ago, BBC, after kind of country file, they were looking at age portrayal and very engaged in that. I was just looking to start the big window and was really interested and became interested in in how people see themselves, not how we label them, which is really important to me, and rang the BBC up at the time, a fantastic guy called David Bunker, who was head of audience search, and said, you really need to be looking at age perception. How do people see themselves? Because that's how they want to engage with the programme, surely, that they are viewing. And lucky for me, he said, you're right, a light bulb's just gone off in my head. And I said, great, because one went off in my head too. Um, so I agreed to explore the area for them and build a model around how people see themselves in age terms and look at the difference between that and their chronological age. Fantastic piece of work because they've got a 16,000 strong media panel where they track everything that you watch on TV, what you're engaging with on websites and all the rest of it. They're absolutely brilliant. I'm pretty sure still to this day, it's the biggest study in the UK on age perception, where we looked at how old people feel versus how old they are. And then we followed that up with a 15 country global study with BBC Worldwide Uh, and published that in some quite highly respected journals. But here's the thing, right? Give us the short form version. Yeah, here's the thing. Here's the punchline. Everybody knows that you kind of, it's intuitive, right, isn't it, that you feel younger than you really are. But that gap starts at age 30. Before then, you want to feel older than you are. It's why we read older magazines when we're teenage girls and all the rest of it. But from about 30, the gap gets bigger and bigger and bigger until around 74, 75, when it's at its biggest. And we typically feel about 15, 16 years younger than we really are. So we kind of feel in our late 50s, in our 60s, you know, perhaps the time where we're really at our peak at work and we're thinking about all the possibilities in our time. We hold on to that into our early to mid 70s. And then the gap starts to slow. So what we saw was this sort of polynomial relationship. And that relationship is universal. It's not just UK, certainly not just affluent Northern European or Western countries. In fact, the biggest gap between real age and age perception is in the South American countries in Brazil. There's something <laughs> about that samba dancing, lifestyle, positive mindset. The beach. So, so powerful. We were able to predict. And, and 30 and globally, universally, 30 is the. Around then, yeah. Give or take a couple of years here and there, definitely yeah. around then. You're talking also that a major contributing factor is the idea that maybe some people are and feel more young at heart than others. Is that true? Yeah, it is true. So clearly there's an average. People typically feel younger at heart on average. But for some people, the gap is less. And for other people, the gap is much wider. 
we were able to see that for those people where the gap is wider, bigger than the mean, we could predict the sorts of television programs that they were watching. You can have a sort of, well, Bake Off's a really good example, which tends to appeal to the younger at heart, even though, for goodness sake, it's a program about baking. <laughs> you know, why does it appeal to the younger heart? Because it has maverick personalities leading it. It'll have a Sue Mel in the first instance and who we've got now. So the maverick characters, even in traditional programs, so those edgy, risky characters tend to really appeal to the younger at heart. And younger at heart people tend to be, you know, more extrovert, more kind of risk-seeking more engaged with news, further afield. So there's something very predictive about this mindset that's really important. Is this linked to personality typing? Because then we can bring in Becca Levy's work at Yale on how beliefs about age actually dictate our outcome and even our longevity. Yeah, love, love, love Becca Levy's work. Love it. Absolutely. So we saw a relationship with positive mindsets and extrinsic personalities or external personality types. So, I mean, in relation to Becker's work around positive mindsets leading to positive outcomes, I think that is a really interesting piece. There's, she showed the world over in many different guises, you know, standing on one leg for longer, recovering quicker from illness, remembering more, there's something around we believe that age is a positive or our life stage is a positive, then that will result in a better outcome for us. That makes sense to me. It certainly makes sense to Saga as a brand, as we started off talking about Saga. How do we play a part in bringing an aspirational version of yourself into your integral belief system? You know, how do we serve that up? That is not about benevolence. That is about facilitation, enabling and laying the ground out. How I typically see aging is, do you know, when we're 80, we still want to swim to the boy. We just feel a bit more of the riptide underneath. We don't need someone to swim for us. We perhaps just need a bit of management of that riptide. And that's where it's at. But if part of this is like baked in in personality and part of it is just a branding problem with the fact that our historical vision of old isn't so cool. Are you suggesting that we can actually like shift? If we shift the perceptions, do we shift enough people's view of the whole business to create a physical, physiological improvement? I think that's true. I think if we shift perceptions, if we work on people that, you know, kind of perhaps take a bit longer to internalize external messaging. Yeah. Yeah. If we encourage the conversation to change around aging, if we present a different view around aging in what we say, in what we write about, in what we show, then eventually that will be internalized. So it will pervade all personality types. It just clearly external personality types will pick up on those external we'll have early movers. And well, early we'll have a, it will be a natural new product diffusion curve, won't it? So I totally believe that. Okay. So in response to all that, what's Saga doing? What is the Saga approach, key messaging? How are you, well, essentially rebranding 
I don't know whether you or your listeners saw, but a couple of years ago, we launched an ad campaign and the underpinning of that campaign was, were the words, experience is everything. And you can see the duality in that strap line. Um, experience is everything in that a positive experience is what you want. That's how we want to see our lives at all stages, but particularly in the stages of life where we have health, wealth, time, and self, you know, those four key components of health, the time. And, wealth, time, yeah, and, self. and self. Yeah. So we kind of feel good about ourselves. We have hopefully a bit of money to spend on ourselves. We have the time to spend it and the belief in ourselves that we can. That we deserve it. That yeah, we, we deserve it. We deserve it. And time is ours, right? It's my time is now. So, and then the other component to experience is everything is the truth about aging. Let me tell you the two forms, if I can take this as an aside and try not to make this too kind of staring at my navel or geeky. <laughs> there are broadly two forms of intelligence fluid intelligence, which are your, you know, speed to cognition, your speed to reasoning, your very kind of Professor Deary would say, imagine a picker in a warehouse. The picker machine is your fluid intelligence. It's the one that zips around, kind of forming where things are. And then your crystallized intelligence are the boxes on the shelves. They're the accumulation of knowledge boxes that you kind of, you mount over time. Now, as we get older, we're probably less reliant on our fluid intelligence. That is the thing that typically declines, usually from our late 20s, that fluid intelligence declines. But we're less reliant on that because we've got all the boxes on the shelves. We've got these enormously valuable components of knowledge, experience, kind of wisdom. I've done it before. So by the time we get to our 50s, particularly our mid fever, <coughs> we're actually making our best most complex decisions and judgments in our kind of early to mid 50s. And that is because experience is everything. It really is. And that lasts, you know, kind of way into our 60s and has a very kind of shallow slope down into our kind of 70s. So this idea, this crystallized intelligence, these knowledge units, these experience units really does mean experience is everything. So that's underpinned our ad strategy for the last kind of two or three years it underpins how we want to deliver our service. You know, we want to provide the best experience for people, whether they're being kind of picked up from the door um, to go on the cruise ship and taken back to their door, or whether there's a service wrapper around our holiday experience. So it's every bit of it is easy or really good quality financial products. It's making that experience everything and recognizing that actually, do you know, as you get older, you want to spend your time in the way that you want to spend it, not banning around doing this other stuff. Fantastic. Absolutely. And I think Arthur Brooks wrote very compellingly about fluid and crystallized intelligence in his book, uh, Strength to Strength. I'm sure many of our readers will have heard. And it's interesting to me that you say our best decisions are made in our 50s, because I always think of the 50s as this entrance into Q3, which can be quite turbulent with many multiple layers of transition, people asking big questions about who do I want to be when I grow up. But you're actually saying that this is maybe the linchpin of this crystallized intelligence resource where we're accessing our boxes 
to go in the right direction, which may sound like it's a saga cruise. <laughs> it could be, yes. I mean, it's really interesting because you also see around the 50s point a kind of turning in what we value. So we start to kind of value more emotional goals more heavily rather than I just want to be CEO or I just want to earn pots of money. You know, as we get into our early 50s, we go, what do I really want to be in life? Um, do I really care or give two hoots about what other people think of me? At last we're freed, the conformity. At last we're free. We're the me I want to be. The me I always was and is now kind of can flourish and come to the surface. And we were talking about Eleanor Mills earlier in her Queen Ages. You know, that is particularly true for women. You know, women have, in quotes, served yes. the family, the other career, the structure of their lives, as, you know, for most of those decades. And they get into their late 50s and 60s and go, which me do I want to be? I've now got the time and freedom and a less restraint to kind of bring that to fruition. And that's why we see women being the key trialists in older years. They are the chief consumption officers of the household. They are the ones that are prepared to try new things, prepared to have a go, look for new tribes, wing women to do it with. So they are fantastic. Do you think that it's also because for women, this is potentially a much more aspirational age and stage. They're just coming out of their sort of dutiful, let's do all my caring roles and juggling. And now they come out into a form of window on yes. all new thing. Whereas I think this is slightly gendered, right? Men are usually caught in the breadwinner model and yes. very hard. So at the same kind of age and stage, they're actually looking towards quite a different, perhaps more restful phase. I think we do see a little bit of a gender slant. That doesn't mean that men and women can't maximise those different life stages, the new form of retirement and so on. But what we see with women is just them being a bit ahead in terms of new product diffusion. Yeah. Yep. So we tend to see them kind of trialing because they're really exploring yeah, they're exploring different versions of themselves that have sort of we've taken the valve off. Now that doesn't mean that men become trapped or that they don't do these things. You know, they might just sit a layer behind. That's what we see in the data. Um, that is quite interesting for us. But really whether you're male or female, whatever your background, this move into the new phases of life, whether it's the unretirement, whether it's purpose, pleasure in equal measure, whatever it might be, this new form of retirement is really exciting. And so it should be. I love your slogans, all of them. But the me <laughs> I want to be, I think, is a fantastic summary of how people are feeling at this phase. So we are moving from this three-phase life to much more heterogeneous phases, much less of the sequential model that you were describing earlier. And that's actually why we call this podcast Four Quarter Lives. But you do kind of pull it back and say there is some predictable age-driven moments. What are they? Yeah, so I mean, I, I kind of referred earlier to a couple of moments which I think are quite interesting. So they become age-driven really because they tend to happen around the same time. You don't wake up on your 50th birthday and suddenly become a different person, but there is something that kind of correlates around that And time. kind of my Q3, Q4. Exactly. Those quarters are malleable. They can move a yeah. little bit, but they do kind of 
at least signify an anchor point. And 50 is quite an interesting age. And I think I can just about remember when I turned 50. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I did think, oh, this is a moment I can now, you know, going back to Becca Levy's theory about socio-emotional selectivity theory, you start to see an horizon. I've got to my 50th, perhaps I can see a version of retirement on the horizon, or I can see the horizon of my mortgage being paid off in so many years, or I can see the children being kind of left home. Because you can see the horizon, you're starting to move towards it. It changes the way you see your life. You start to challenge how you want to spend years. And that's really the trigger into much more kind of an emotional setting or an emotional set of criteria and goals, which is very interesting. And of course, the other thing... And see horizon, does that also mean mortality, that you see the end approaching? Yeah, that is definitely, I mean, kind of mortality is definitely an horizon. You know, we're talking about the big window or windows of our lives, but that gives you a window, doesn't it? It says, right, how do I want to spend this time that I have? How do I want to spend this time I have at work before I retire in whatever form or I retire in the form that I'm working now? How do I want to spend this time as a grandparent before the grandchildren get too old? How do I want to spend this window of my life before, you know, I kind of pass on? And because you can start to see that and the closer it gets, it changes. And I think we would all recognize that. Another overlay to that, of course, is when you reach 50, you start to think about your time and income and whether you've got enough. Right. So in our financial services world, which we're very engaged with on the big window side, we can see people think, do I have enough? Do I need to speed up before I slow down? Do I need to add into the pot? How are my kind of pensions constituted? The prevalence of the DC, you know, the direct contribution pension, how are they constituted? Are they going to be enough? How will I serve my retirement? So we start to see a sort of maneuvering of behavior around that as well money okay so that's the 50-year moment then there's again a 75-year moment that you've referred to a couple of times what i would call that fourth quarter shift what happens then what's the characteristic of that yeah you quite beautifully kind of segmented these quarters so i did it with a lot less research than you (laughs) you're now proving me right which i super appreciate (laughs) Uh, look you know our intuition and our instincts is typically good isn't it and of course that's the bit that gets better with age because you've got all these boxes that i talked just wait till i'm 75 yeah you wait till then (laughs) but yeah at 75 look we do see a narrowing of the gap between a real and perceived age. And why do we think that is? Well, we think it coincides with what we see in terms of health characteristics start to come to the fore. So for instance, you do can look in the mirror in your mid-70s or you can see that things are a little bit more creaky. You can still swim to the buoy. It just perhaps you need to warm up a bit more or you need to cool down a bit more afterwards. You can walk that 12-mile hike from Whitby to Stades or wherever it is, you know, you might need to just kind of loosen up or you might need a bit of support on the way. So around those mid-70s, you know, we kind of start to see the characteristics of health kind of coming to the fore. In financial planning terms, what we talk about is the sort of mid-60s to mid-70s being your really active retirement phase. It's when you want to do Machu Picchu, Galapagos, tour around Vietnam, Great Wall of China, you're out there, you're doing stuff to your house and all the rest of it. Yep. Big stuff. And you're really kind of enjoying that window 
of health, wealth, time and self. When we get to the mid 70s, it's not that you want to really do less, but the nature of what you do starts to change a bit. You might do more in the community. We see a lot of people engaged with helping older people when they're in their late 70s and early 80s. You know, they want to be supportive of those people around them. And they actually, they don't see themselves as being old. They just see themselves as being at a phase, which is a little bit more passive than it was before, but it is not inactive. That's what we start to see. That's that change point at 75. Fantastic. Okay. So I think that's a good thing to remember. The reality of 50s as a transition into sort of me, me time, and checking if you need to suddenly do a last burst of saving and earning before you slow down. And then 75 is sort of natural restacking of actually what you want to do and where you want to do it and probably who you want to do it with as the reality of the physicality of aging. Yeah, we've got to be authentic, right? We've got to be authentic about aging. We can't say you're going to be running a marathon. Well, like some people, of course, do run a marathon. There is some of that in the media, right? Of course, of course. All the 100-year-olds jumping from planes. But we're not all doing that into our, you know, kind of 100th year. But we are very able to live a great life into our older years. We just need to think about how we're going to do that and be authentic and realistic about which part of myself I want to bring to the fore at different times. So do generations have a slightly the different Gen X and boomers that you spoke about? Do they have different expectations or approaches to these transition moments? I think this generational point is really important. And it is the key to not just seeing age as linear. Like say if you're a marketeer and you think, you know, I want to appeal to people perhaps not in their 70s, perhaps in their 60s. So I'll do what I was doing before, just make it feel just slightly younger. That's just rubbish. Because actually people in their 60s come from a completely different socio-political context and even economic context. The silent generation are built around that kind of war or just post-war mentality of deference. We went to see our bank manager in typically his office. The insurance man would come to the door. You know, we respected people in white coats. We were more cautious and deferent and so on. Whereas the boomers, they grew up with rolling stones. They grew up with kind of feeling quite liberal about themselves, their bodies, their kind of sexual relationships. You know, they're not pruning roses they want to listen to the stone roses and also what's interesting about the boomers we did some research kind of recently around the different kind of aging and life staging points is that they've always been pretty successful they were the first group to really have careers with proper defined benefits pensions they experienced the massive house price rises certainly during the 80s you've got people that are sitting on huge assets. They're benefiting from inheritance. So they've been successful without having, they've earned it. They deserve it, but they haven't had to plan it too much. They didn't have to sweat it too much. And then behind them, you've got the Gen Xs, who are different. Again, they're very individualist. They're composite careers. They are defined contribution pensions. You know, they're going to have to probably, as I say, work harder, longer into retirement. They will have to combine. They can be digital nomads. They will be able to work from kind of anywhere. 
but they'll probably do that for a bit longer. So they come from a different mentality about how you build career and then retirement. And if that's their reference point, if their reference points are kind of new romantics and individualism and all of that stuff, what they relate to, this point about relevance is going to be completely different. I hear a lot of pushback on the generational stereotyping and people warn against an overuse of this. How do you draw the line between recognizing the subtleties of and the cultural context of when these people emerged in their lives and how it formed them? and not becoming formulaic? And how do companies sort through this complexity? I think you have to take that as one variable. Generations are important, but it's a variable. It's not the determinant. It's not the primary determinant. It's a variable. We have to understand where we are now as a society. We have to understand individual variation. We have to understand what's available to people now. Kind of generations perhaps didn't anticipate that the older population would be Facebooking. We would have grandfluences on Instagram and TikTok, that there will be conversations between people that are digital as well as in cafes. See all of these things as variables and understand how they combine together. You know, and it's got, an opportunity rather than yeah. a stake and a problem. It's and an opportunity rather than an anchor that just weighs you down. Yeah, absolutely. So this has been a fantastic navigation through all kinds of things, four-quarter lives, transition phases, experiences, everything, and the me I want to be. I love these slogans. Any advice? Can we synthesize any advice to companies listening that may not yet quite even have begun to embrace longevity strategies and adapting to this demographic shift towards generational balance? What would you tell them to start doing? Well, well, I guess the first thing is, let's be commercial about it. There's real value in the older or the life stage consumer. There are 25.7 million people in the UK today over 50, I think nigh on 13 million or approaching 13 million over 65. And you can see this huge value in those people that those over 60 are doing average of six your hobbies or kind of activities they're enjoying new things they feel really quite strongly about their health so this opportunity the second point I'd make is we need to wake up to certainly where the opportunity is we need to perhaps stop just talking about the over 50s you know as you're talking about the third and fourth quarter that's certainly the start place. But people still working in their 50s, of course, they've got kind of money to spend and they'll be engaged with consumerism, probably typically still through their family. But there are these people in their 60s and certainly early 70s that are spending by exception. They're buying holidays and trips and they're doing things to their house and they're engaging with their grandchildren and they're having days out. You know, let's understand where this value sits and what the opportunity in a much more nuanced way, um, this phase certainly between kind of 60 and the early 70s, which takes me on to the last point, which we can't just say 50 plus. The reality is that that exceptional consumer spending doesn't last forever. We do see, you know, a kind of more of a cliff edge, not for everybody, 
but into people's late 70s and beyond. And we see the children start engaging more in the family decision making into people's late 80s. But let's be more nuanced and authentic about how we see the commercial opportunity. And then the final point I would make is, and we talk about this a lot in the big window, and for consultancies and organizations, you know, providers out there, you know, the reality is we're probably not going to persuade marketers to solely engineer products for the over 60s. But what we can do is talk to organizations about how you maximize your value. You know, given where you already position your products, which might be in the family life stage, typically, you know, between 35 and 49, how do you twist those propositions? How do you work communications into them so that you can really maximize the value of your offering? We are not going to get you to kind of completely change an offer. And perhaps it's not important to offer something completely different, but how do we get you to shape so that you really maximize your opportunity, your commercial opportunity. Fantastic. Companies listening, you've got it. Don't limit yourselves to the 50 plus. What I'm taking away is the 60s is super sexy with huge spending power and that people are really spending then and it would do well for companies to start understanding them and paying attention to them a little bit better. I'm waiting to be seduced. So we will welcome companies that are ready to play this dance and feature them. Lisa, Edgar, thank you so much for contributing and all the work you've done on rebranding old to something that feels wonderful. Health, wealth, time, and self. Total pleasure. (laughs) Keep it up. I'll come back to you at 75. Okay. See you then. Bye. (laughs) Bye Bye-bye. For more thinking about the impact of our four quarter lives, you can read my column at Forbes and subscribe to my Elderberries newsletter on Substack. Let's design lives that aren't just longer, but better.